0: But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them.
1: well hello everybody it's good to be here tonight why don't you just pray for us while we get started heavenly father as we come again to your word we ask for your uh, help to open our hearts and minds uh, to what is said uh, father please uh, give us hearts that submit give us hearts that um, love you um, in jesus name amen Well, the section of Scripture we're looking at today is uh, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel. It's in chapter 28 and verse 16 to 20. It's only five verses. And if you look at the title uh, in your Bible above those five verses, you'll see that it's probably labelled the Great Commission. Now, there's two potential problems, I think, as we come to the Great Commission section of Scripture, um, and we create these problems for ourselves. And I think the first thing is this. Because the Great Commission is at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, right? it's after Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, we tend to interpret it something like this. Now after the resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples in their hometown of Galilee and they all lived happily ever after. Amen. Now, you can laugh, but if we're honest, that's often how we read the end of a story, isn't it? And so it's often how we read the end of Matthew's Gospel. And we miss the significance of what this scripture is actually saying. Although it's Matthew's ending, it's actually a new beginning. Jesus, on the basis of his resurrection life, is commissioning something new. Now the second problem we face, I think, sometimes is that we weren't there in Galilee, so we're tempted, I think, to feel that this great commission isn't quite relevant to us, it's mostly relevant to these early disciples of Jesus. Is that true? So that's how I want to approach, uh, well, how I'm going to approach the scriptures today is considering these two hindrances to the text, is sometimes this great commission for us actually becomes a bit more like our great omission, doesn't it? So that's how I'm going to approach things today by asking ourselves are there truths here in the Great Commission that you and I, that we together have omitted from the Christian life, omitted from the life of our church, with an aim to correcting that, if needs be, our understanding of God's will? So let me encourage you, if you've got a pen and paper today, uh, your job is to write down your great omissions as we examine these scriptures that you can correct your understanding of God's will as we go through this section now the first great omission i think that i sense highlighted by our text is when the scripture uses the word all so verse 18 all authority all nations verse 19 teaching them all that i have commanded i am with you always verse 20 you see the claim of jesus in verse 18 it permeates the whole scriptures here doesn't it Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think the significance of this is easy to miss because as Christians, we know that Jesus is God, don't we? We see him in the gospel accounts. He's doing things only God can do. He's forgiving sins. He's performing miracles. And so we're familiar with and we expect Jesus to have divine authority. But if that's all Jesus means here at the end of Matthew's gospel, it doesn't make a lot of sense at this juncture. Hey, guys, don't forget I'm God. No, I don't think he's just doing that. He's doing something more. And I think to capture the full scope of what Jesus means here, we've got to see what Jesus means when he says that this authority has been given to him. Did you notice that? Now, Jesus is highlighting that he's received this authority from his father. Now, listen carefully. He's received a particular appointment to exercise his sovereign reign over heaven and earth on the basis of his death and resurrection. And this is a new expression of his power for a redemptive purpose, namely to redeem all nations for himself. And we can go to other places in scripture to see this. For example, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament Which looks forward to this reign of Christ. So, if you want, you can turn with me in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 745. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel's prophetic book after the big book of Ezekiel. It's worth turning this up. So Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, page 745, starting at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? In this vision from Daniel, we see the Son of Man, a title that Jesus uses of himself some 30 times in Matthew's Gospel. is depicted in Daniel as receiving authority directly from Almighty God to rule over all peoples and nations. And here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that he has received this reign, that it is commencing. And therefore, they are to go and tell people to serve Jesus and nobody else. So, after Jesus' resurrection, we actually learn of Jesus' accession. Now, notice I said accession, not ascension. Accession means the act of entering upon or attaining to an office a right or a condition. And we are actually made familiar with this concept recently, weren't we? Because with the death of Queen Elizabeth, if you're following the news, King Charles acceded to power over the throne of the United Kingdom when she died. Now there's a sense in which Charles was always king. He was the son and the heir. He had all the qualifications. The only question was when would Charles begin to exercise his reign over his kingdom? Similarly, in this scripture, Jesus is laying claim to his entitlement over all nations and all peoples on earth. So what have you omitted? Have you omitted this reign of Jesus from your life? Because here Jesus declares his total and sovereign claim to rule over your person, your life, your possessions, for the benefit of his kingdom, which he rules forever. And he is going to rule, whether you like it or not. Now, we don't like to speak that way very often, but the Bible speaks that way. For example, in Psalm 2, which is a kingly psalm, it says this, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, perhaps through a mission, you've mistakenly thought that this present age was given to you for the purpose of building your kingdom. And so you've gone about exercising your sovereignty. But Jesus rebukes us in this passage because the right response to the Great Commission is to worship him, just as his disciples do in verse 17. So we orientate our whole life and worship him. We worship him with our mouths. Worship him with your time. Worship him with your money. Have you omitted any of those? Now, I sense another great omission is revealed when we examine the imperative that flows from this reign of Jesus. Like all kings, Jesus is using his power to build his kingdom. He's expanding the influence of his dominion to bring order to his realm. And look at how he does it in verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, says Jesus. Do you see how he's going to do it? Jesus makes his disciples responsible for making more disciples. They're the ones to work alongside him, growing the kingdom. Jesus invests his power and authority in these first disciples to go and make more disciples, more followers of Jesus. And where and to whom were they to go? All nations. Which makes sense, right? Because how could it be said that Jesus has all power on heaven and earth, but his disciples only reside in Galilee or Jerusalem or Australia? or butler. That's why Jesus uses the word go, because it's difficult to imagine how the disciples would teach all the nations while sitting on their couches in Jerusalem. So let me ask, is this responsibility to make disciples something that we too easily omit? And maybe there's many reasons for this. Some have the idea that one day Jesus is going to start a redemptive reign in the future here on earth when he himself is going to do all the work by himself, saving masses of people by himself. Well, I suggest if you're sitting back waiting for such a time, then our text tells us that the all-encompassing reign of Jesus over all the nations, where his power is poured out for their salvation, it's already started. It started 2,000 years ago. His death and resurrection was the, the, the starting point that broke the powers of chain, broke the the chains of sin and death, that made this uh, rescue missions possible. His death and resurrection it bound the strong man of Matthew chapter twelve, so he can plunder the house of Satan. Would you like to plunder it with him? Go and make disciples of all nations, says Jesus. But I think we also tend to omit the go part of this instruction, don't we? That's the requirement that we actually think about and care for other people and other places. How do we know if this is our greater mission? Well, you won't spend money on the gospel in foreign places. You won't consider going to another place yourself. You'll go on holiday, you'll go travelling, but you won't ever go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. You won't consider moving houses in WA to take the gospel to a suburb that's got no church. But you've got to be close to Perth for work, right? Well, what if being close to church and to the people with no gospel is more important? What if our great mission is a misordering of our priorities? And what if our church isn't being shaped by this go instruction? Well, we might minister in a way where we feel like all the action of God's Holy Spirit is taking place in our church. Dear God, keep us from this sort of insular and isolated Christianity that's detached from his great commission. Now, some may have objections, reservations, fears. I think that's pretty natural. For example, what if the great commission actually only applies to those first apostles, you know, the ones who established the church, but not the church itself? That's a fair question. But who were the gathered people of God after Jesus' resurrection? Wasn't it these 12 disciples that Jesus called out? And were there not hundreds more that Jesus and the disciples had converted throughout his ministry? Was it not upon these disciples of whom the Spirit fell and gave them the power? And then what did they do? Well, they proclaimed the rule and the reign of Jesus over the nation and he commanded them to repent. You see, the Great Commission was given to the church. That's why he gave his Spirit, so the church can faithfully execute the mission of Jesus on earth. But we can reason further from our scripture on this, can't we? Because if Jesus' reign is about making more disciples, and if the process by which disciples are made is disciples making more disciples, and if Jesus is still saving people today by the power of his spirit, even though the apostles are long gone, then the Great Commission is still underway. And so the only question is, are you a part of it? Which is why verse 20 says the Great Commission will not stop, quote, until the end of the age. And that's an important point in and of itself, isn't it? Because the Great Commission will end one day. The time to respond to the invitation put out by the Great Commission is when we see disciples pleading with the nations to turn to him because one day they will stop. And on that day Christ will be turned, to Christ's power will be turned against the nations because as he gathers his people into their inheritance, the rest who haven't responded, they get kicked out, just like the people of Canaan in the Old Testament. They were kicked out of the promised land, the place of God's rule. And Christ will give all the nations to the people, to his people, sorry, as their inheritance. Matthew 5 and verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Well, there's a third great omission that I sense, and I think was one we suffer from uh, frequently, and it's highlighted by the description that Jesus gives again in verses nineteen and twenty. So look again at verses nineteen and twenty with me. He says, "Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." So here is a very summary description of the work of disciple making do you think that jesus's disciples would have anyway been surprised by the description of that work i don't think so because isn't that what jesus has precisely been doing with them for the last few years baptizing converts and teaching the people about himself and his kingdom it's nothing new you see jesus had been preparing them for this great commission to all the nations Jesus discipled the disciples while they were discipling. Would that be a good way to define the Christian life? Jesus discipling you while together with him you disciple others. But this work of discipling that Jesus did, it wasn't easy, was it? It was tireless. It didn't end. It was constantly challenging, thankless. He was rejected, at times unpopular. They were persecuted and vilified. But despite all of that, Jesus and the disciples made more disciples. But one reason the work was not easy is because did you notice the kind of disciples that Jesus wants to make? Jesus wants all disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. He doesn't want disciples with a shallow allegiance to him. Remember like the crowds that followed Jesus all over the countryside, they wanted bread and miracles, but then they turned away when Jesus said something hard? No, Jesus wants obedient and faithful followers, followers who understand his teaching sufficiently to obey all of it. So it stands to reason that this Great Commission is going to require people to be nurtured and matured over a long period in the teachings of Jesus. If they have any hope of fulfilling what Jesus says here, So here's where I sense the other great omission. And it's when we try to avoid this hard work factor. And we do that by maybe sometimes introducing a reductionist understanding of disciple making. You see in verse 19, there's a clear link between baptism and instruction. Christian disciple making, therefore, is going to require patience, constant and determined effort. Prayer, more prayer. grace that's because making a profession of faith and sprinkling people with water it's easy by itself but by itself it doesn't make anyone a disciple and nor can disciple making be whittled down to getting someone to pray a prayer or walk in front of the church these formulas they may occur at the beginnings of our explaining the faith but they're not by themselves at the heart of true disciple making are they So we mustn't fool ourselves into thinking that these easy things are all that's required of us of fulfilling the Great Commission because we're not only called to lead people into a profession of Jesus, rather this Great Commission requires an environment where they can mature and grow so that they can grasp the full scope of Jesus' teaching. What does this environment look like? Well, Ephesians 4 says that Jesus has gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. But we can go on, singers, administrators, mums and dads, young people, creche workers, and the list goes on and on. All of these have essential gifts that go into the life of the church, whereby the word of Christ can dwell amongst us all richly. You see, the Great Commission needs local churches. It needs Bible studies. It needs theological colleges. It needs missionary partnerships. It needs church AGMs, as boring as they sound. The Great Commission means we must sit down and develop a vision for our church, a financial plan for our church, whereby the spiritual gifts and the offerings of God's people must be put to use fulfilling his Great Commission. So as we conclude now and we turn our hearts to planning the future of our church, let's be wary of how easy it is for the truths in this passage to become our great omission if we're not careful to do them. Let's not forget that word all in relation to Jesus' authority. includes each and every one of us individually, demanding we surrender our sovereignty to the reign of our resurrected Lord. But even among Christians who have done that, we've got to confess that too often we omit the responsibility to work alongside our Lord to make disciples. It's very easy for the Christian life to be only inward-looking, isn't it? My problems lord my sins my this my that but if we switched our great omission for the great commission then it's the solution that we need for that kind of selfishness isn't it because the growth of jesus kingdom requires that we look away from ourselves to those around us who are perishing in their sins while the kingdom of god's salvation is here So we confess that we neglect this responsibility because the work is hard and we shy away from the commitment, don't we? We settle for that reductionist approach to the Great Commission, the version that doesn't require real, long-term investment in people, doesn't require that long-term investment in a community. But because the work is hard and it is daunting in many ways, there is one thing left, one more thing that we must never omit. And that's actually the promise, the final promise that Jesus gives in Matthew's Gospel, and that last part of verse 20. And behold, says Jesus. You see how the Scripture wants to grab our attention at this point because this promise is so easily forgotten as we, we get busy for the Lord. Behold, I am with you always, literally all the days. As we fulfill this Great Commission, there's never a day when he, Jesus, is not there. We serve in his strength. We serve alongside him in the presence and the power of his spirit. If we admit this truth, brothers and sisters, we'll get angry, frustrated at the rejection, at the hard work. We'll not take risks. Why? Because we'll think we're going it alone. And we might quit. So instead of that result, let me leave you with this final thought. If we as Christians desire to experience the power and the presence of Jesus, then it would seem that this promise would indicate that it's in this work of discipleship, growing as a disciple and making other disciples. Jesus is with us in that. Well, why don't I give you a few moments just to reflect on that list of of omissions that you may have written down and, and just talk to the Lord about them, and then I will finish in prayer um and then we can turn our attention to the lord's table heavenly father we confess in many ways as we examine the scripture that it's all too easy to forget that we are part Of your process for building the kingdom Uh, please forgive us for the ways that we neglect your mission on earth to glorify your son please give us a heart for people around us in this community even amongst us in this church and even overseas in faraway places Uh, help us to align our church vision our finances and all of the things that we do in this church around Uh, this great commission of yours and may it not be an omission on our part in jesus name amen